convenience is often the primary driver of many of the habits that we do. So if I have my phone next to me, if it's on the desk right beside me, I'm like everybody else. I'll check it like every three minutes. You know, I'll check it a hundred times in the morning. But if I leave it in another room, I never go get it. The question I have to myself is, well, did did I want it or not? You know, like in one sense, I did want it because I would check it a hundred times if it's right by me. But in the other sense, I never wanted it bad enough to work 45 seconds to go get it. And I think that there's so many things like that in our lives now, you know, like life is so frictionless, so effortless in many ways, checking your phone, scrolling social media, ordering a meal on Uber Eats, turning on Netflix and finding a show to watch. Like all of these things are so convenient that we find ourselves doing them at like the slightest whim. And so if you just restructure your environment a little bit to add a little friction between you and the phone, between you and the remote, between you and the meal, then what you find is you often do actually want to do the harder thing. Hello, friend, and welcome to episode 33 of the Feeling Full podcast. I hope you're having an excellent day wherever you are. I'm Mordecai, an entrepreneur and coach who struggled with being overweight for nearly two decades. But since 2012, I've lost 130 pounds and have kept it off. Join me and my guest today to discover how it's possible and even simple to lose weight with ease, without going on crazy diets and without doing intense workouts. If you're ready to give up quick fixes and fad diets and build a fulfilling relationship with your body and food, then the show is for you. Today's show is with someone you may have heard me speak about before, James Clear. James is the author of the best-selling book, Atomic Habits, which has sold over 4 million copies and has been on the New York Times bestseller list for over a year. His weekly newsletter, 321, which I'm a little bit obsessed with, has over a million subscribers. I highly recommend it if you want simple, easy tips on creating sustainable habits in your life. Today, I'm bringing back an interview I did with James two years ago, which is filled with easy, simple, and sustainable approaches to creating positive behavior change in your life. James's book and his overall work around atomic habits has had such a profound impact in my life and maybe yours as well. In our conversation today, we discussed the difference between an outcome-based habit, I want to lose 40 pounds, for example, to an identity-based habit where a person thinks to themselves, I am someone who eats healthy, and how that small shift can change your entire life. Another idea that we jam on, which I'm overly enthusiastic about in my own life, is taking a habit that you want to create and making it so small, chunking it down to the smallest size where it's almost, it sounds annoying. For example, you know, I 10 years ago decided I was going to create a habit around exercise and I didn't want to create it around going to a gym. So what I did was I chunked it down to the smallest thing and that was putting my sneakers on every single morning. That was my habit that I was creating was putting the sneakers on. And guess what? Most mornings ended up going for a walk, going to a gym doing some type of exercise and we're 10 years later here and I'm still doing the same thing. And majority of mornings I work out, I go for a walk and it doesn't take all that willpower that it used to take to get me to go to the gym. I know sometimes if you're anything like me, we get really starry eyed when we want to make a change and we get overly ambitious and commit to something that sounds really profound and it's really hard to keep because it's so big and so audacious. So I really encourage you to think about the idea of chunking it down. Anyways, I'm going to leave that for the pro James Clear. I thought thoroughly enjoyed this conversation with James. I hope you enjoyed as well. And before we get started, it would mean a whole lot to me if you would take just a few seconds and subscribe to the podcast. Not only will that ensure you never miss an episode, but you also greatly help with the growth of the show. Alrighty, thanks for joining me and let's jump right in. So I'm really excited to have James on the show today. Welcome, James. Hi, yeah, great to talk to you. 
I want to start off by asking you, where did this passion for habits come from? When did you start to recognize that you're really excited about it? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, all humans are building habits all the time, right? Whether you're thinking about it or not. So it, you know, they've played a role in my life since the, you know, the moment I was born. But most of the time we don't really think about them. They just kind of we, it's almost like we inherit our habits. So they kind of happen to us rather than we design them. And that was true for me for a long time. I played sports for many years and uh, ended up playing baseball all the way through college. And that was kind of the first area where I really got exposed to the idea of like creating a habit, designing it, structuring it. And, uh, you know, as any athlete can tell you, there are all sorts of habits that you have when you're on the practice field or in the gym training and so on. And so that was kind of where I got exposed to this idea of, oh, you know, with effort and skill and practice and uh, some structure, you can kind of shape a new habit or a new skill for yourself. And gradually, I think I started to internalize that and utilize it in school and then in work and other areas of life as well. But it really wasn't until the last five years or so that I became interested in like the science of how it was working, like what was going on behind the scenes. So I kind of had this practical application as an athlete and as an entrepreneur and so on. And then I started writing about it more and reading the research and uh, eventually the last three years working on Atomic Habits and kind of you know structuring that and, and uh, thinking about it more carefully. And I started to put two and two together, right? Started to piece the philosophical research, science-based side with the practical, actionable, you know, how do I actually utilize this in my daily life side? So I think that the short answer to your question is that I became interested in them because of because of that, because they're scientifically grounded and they have practical application in daily life. And I, I really like the overlap of those two things, things that are have been proven out by the research again and again, but also can be utilized in my daily life. Right. I think a lot of people um, want to create, you know, the habits they want to create. And I think we often struggle with how to stay on track, right? And you have some great points in your book. One of my favorite is the idea of identity-based habit, right? You become that person who is that thing. And my question to you is, you know, creating an identity-based habit, what are the key structures to actually doing that? Yeah. So first, just to get everybody up to speed, this idea is sort of, I kind of have this dichotomy between outcome-based habits and identity-based habits. And a lot of the time when someone tries to make a change, they focus on the outcome they want. So, you know, I want to lose 40 pounds in six months, or I want to make six figures this year or whatever the outcome is. And then from that outcome, they come up with a plan. So, all right, if I want to lose weight, then I need to go to the gym four days a week and I need to follow this diet plan. And then they kind of just think, well, and once I do that, I'll be the type of person I want to be, right? The identity will come sort of as a side effect or naturally from this outcome. And my argument is that it's often more useful, more powerful to invert that process. So rather than starting with the outcome and letting the identity come naturally, let's start with the identity and let the outcome come uh, as a side effect or come naturally on its own. So rather than saying, well, I want to lose 40 pounds, let's say, well, who is the type of person that could lose 40 pounds? Well, maybe it's the type of person that doesn't miss workouts. And once you have that question, who is the type of, how can I be the type of person that doesn't miss workouts? Or you're focused on that identity. How can I be the type of person that writes every day? It shifts the way that you think about solving that problem, right? If you're focused on the outcome, okay, I want to lose weight as fast as possible. Well, then you start saying, well, maybe I need to do this juice cleanse, or maybe I should join a CrossFit gym or do Insanity or P90X or some crazy like intense workout program. You have a tendency to bite off more than you can chew. And then you get injured or you get sick or you burn out or whatever. But if instead you say, 
how can I show up each day? How can I be the person who meditates for one minute or writes one sentence or does one push up? Well, then you start to see that like the path to building that identity and reinforcing that belief about yourself, it can be done in a very small way in the beginning, you know, and this is why I say things in the book, like the goal is not to run a marathon. The goal is to become a runner. The goal is not to write a book. The goal is to become a writer. And the goal is not to, you know, meditate for an hour every day. The goal is to be a meditator. You really want to instill that identity. And you can do that in small ways. And this is what comes back to, to this phrase that you mentioned, this idea that every action you take is a vote for the kind of person that you want to become, right? So little things like doing one push-up, no, that it's not going to transform your body overnight, but it does cast a vote for being the type of person who doesn't miss workouts. And I think in the long run, that really helps habits stick because you start to look at yourself in a new way, right? You're in a certain sense, like true behavior change is identity change. Because once you have proved yourself, oh, this is the type of person I am. Once you have adopted that identity of I am a writer, or I am a meditator, or I am an exerciser. Once you believe and look at yourself in that way, you're not even really pursuing behavior change anymore. You're just acting in alignment with who you already think that you are. You know, And this is why you hear people say things like, I don't really try to get motivated to go to the gym anymore. Like it's just part of my daily routine, right? Or it's just, you know, that's just what I do on Mondays as I go. And ultimately I think that identity change is a more powerful approach for getting a habit to stick and last in the long run. Yeah. And I think that's really interesting because we live in a society where we want everything right away, right? Instinct gratification is the way we think about everything. So if someone wants to lose 50 pounds, the natural way to go about it is to go on a diet. And go on an extreme diet, and within three months or two months of following a program, all of a sudden you lose 30, 40 pounds. And then all the habits that you had created during that point were not really coming, forming into habits because they weren't enjoyable or fun, right? So you don't continue doing them. Now you've reached destination and you gain the weight back, which is why 95% of dieters gain the weight back. So I guess my question is when you want something so badly and you're 50 or 100 or 200 pounds overweight, how do you keep your attention focused in the process? And then mm. become the person who just goes for a five-minute walk, become the person who drinks a bit more water, right? How do, you, how do you embrace that lifestyle from just having a goal-driven, I'm going to lose you know, 10 pounds this month mindset? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think I'll, I want to give two answers here. So one is tactical and one is strategic. So from a tactical standpoint, there are plenty of things you can do to try to improve the odds that you stick with the process and start small and so on. And I have a lot of them in the book. One of my favorite ones is the two-minute rule. And so you take whatever habit you're trying to build and you scale it down to just two minutes or less. So, you know, do yoga four days a week becomes take out my yoga mat or uh, go for a run for 30 minutes each day becomes put on my running shoes or read 20 books a year becomes read one page. Like you scale it down to something you can do in two minutes or less and you just focus on that. And sometimes people, they kind of resist that answer because they think, well, that must sound kind of like a mental trick, right? Like I know I'm really trying to go for a full run. I'm not just trying to put my running shoes on. So why would I do that? And if you feel that way, then what I would encourage you to do is to actually set like a limiter on your behavior. So I, I had one reader who he ended up losing over hundred pounds. And one of the first things that he did was he went to the gym, but he wasn't allowed to stay for longer than five minutes. I love that. So he would get in the car, drive to the gym, get out, do half an exercise, get back in the car, drive home. And it sounds that. silly. You know, people are like, well, you know, this is not going to get this guy in shape. Like, what is he focusing on? But 
what you realize is that he was becoming the type of person that went to the gym four days a week, right? He was becoming the type of person that showed up, even if it was just for five minutes. And that mastering the art of showing up, that's a key factor in building better habits, right? Like you need to, the way that I like to phrase it is a habit must be established before it can be improved, right? So often we're focused on like people usually start on the opposite end of the spectrum, right? Let me find the perfect workout program or get the best trainer or what is the ideal diet to follow? They're focusing on optimizing rather than standardizing, you know, like how do I just become the person who gets in the car and drives to the gym for five minutes? It's not going to transform my body overnight, but I have to be able to do that if I want to be, you know, in better shape or ultimately lose the weight or whatever. So standardize before you optimize, uh, follow that two minute rule, figure, find out a small way to show up, even if it's just two minutes or less. I think that's a good tactical way to stay focused on the process, but there's a bigger conversation to have, which is a more strategic or philosophical thing to focus on that I think is also important to understand, to actually get yourself to stick to this in the long run. So this is something like the strategic question to ask yourself or to, to remind yourself of. One of the, the common questions I get is, how long does it take to build a habit, right? Like, does it take 30 days or 21 days or 66 days, things like that. And I get what people, why they ask it, right? They want to know, like, how long do I have to work hard before this kind of, you know, gets easy or it doesn't require as much effort or whatever. But it's sort of the wrong question to ask. It's sort of, there's like this implicit assumption behind it. Like, well, how long until I don't have to put effort in anymore? And I think the honest answer to that question is, how long does it take to build a habit? Well, forever, because once you stop doing it, it's no longer a habit, right? And once you understand that, you realize that habits are not a finish line to be crossed. They're a lifestyle to be lived. And that I think is the strategic or philosophical thing that you need to sort of internalize and embrace. Like strategies like the two minute rule can be very helpful. You also need uh, looking at this and understanding that I'm trying to build a lifestyle actually. Like I'm not actually, I'm not trying to like run a race and cross the finish line. I'm not trying to lose 40 pounds on this, you know, extreme diet that isn't sustainable and then turn around three months later and not have to do healthy stuff anymore. You, what you're actually trying to do, and this comes back to what you asked about previously with the identity, right? You're, trying to become a healthy person, trying to live that new lifestyle. And this, I think, the reason I bring it up is I think it helps prove the point of why small habits are important. Because if you're trying to sustain something for the long run, well, you're looking for a small change that isn't intimidating, that's not threatening, something that you can actually do each day and feel confident about that being part of your new normal. I think if you embrace that philosophy or that strategy, and you have tactics like the two-minute rule, then you sort of have this like one-two punch that helps keep you on track. Yeah, certainly. That makes a lot of sense. And I love that two-minute rule. And I love the idea of like, you know, going to the gym and not even allowing yourself to do the workout or just maybe one workout or a half workout because that creates to easy enough to do that you have no excuse not to do it. And then when, it, when you do it, you start wanting to do more. And I think that's great. That's actually my process as well to, to losing weight and maintaining it. The thing that comes to mind is how do you actually you know, how does somebody actually stay on track to go to the gym for 30, 30 days straight or six days straight for five minutes at a time, right? If that's the thing that they're working at. So first answer to that question is pick just one habit to focus on. You know, a lot of times people get really ambitious or get excited when they think about making a change and they're like, all right, I'm going to build this new diet and I'm going to go for a run each day. And I'm going to, you know, like they pick like four or five different things that are going to add in their life and it just gets overwhelming or complicated very quickly. So start by choosing one thing. And one of the reasons I suggest that is that when you pick one thing, 
you often aren't actually just picking one thing. If you right. say, for example, I want to build the habit of going to the gym. Well, okay, there are a variety of questions that need to be answered then. Okay, which gym will you go to? What time are you going to go? Are you going to go before work or after work? Uh, what route will you take to get there? Is it on the road to your commute or do you need to like take a new route uh, to work or from work? Do you have your gym bag ready the night before and then you go in the morning or do you come home and then you get changed clothes? Do you need to bring a water bottle or is there a water fountain at the gym? And you know, a bunch of little logistical things like that. And those things sound simple, but each one of them is actually a little habit in itself, right? Like getting in the habit of prepping your gym bag before work each night or filling up your water bottle before you get in the car in the morning or the habit of driving on a new route so that you can pass the gym on your way to work, things like that. And all of those little habits are part of the thing you actually want to do, which is get in the habit of exercising consistently. So even if you just say, I'm going to do this one thing, there's often these kind of related habits that you need to master as well. And another reason, and this also ties back with this idea of, let me just show up for two minutes or for five minutes or whatever, something really easy, something so easy, you can't say no to it. Another reason why that's important is that little things like go to the gym and I've been working out for three weeks, but I always forget to fill up my water bottle and they don't have a water fountain there. And you know, whatever, like that sounds like nothing, but that's enough to get somebody to quit in the beginning, right? When it, when it starts to get hard, little pieces of friction like that are enough to make it unpleasant or uncomfortable enough that you're like, oh, I just don't want to bother with it. And so by just focusing on one thing, by just focusing on a small thing, by making it as easy as possible in the beginning, you give yourself more of a chance to master those little logistical details. And then once you've got that stuff figured out, you're in a better position to actually scale it up and expand and do the, the more yeah. difficult work in the long run. That's great. That's, that's, a, that's some great tactical advice. You know, the thing that comes to mind is when somebody wants to change their habits and their, their, their environment, the people around them don't want to change their habits. So you got all these people around you, you're, you know, you're in a family situation and you're like, all right, I'm going to lose 50 pounds this year. I want to get healthy. You know, uh, you know I'm going to take it slowly. I'm going to go to gym. And then, you know, before you go to gym, someone, you're, you know, a sibling or, you know, your wife or your husband says, hey, we're going to dinner with so-and-so. And, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, I said I'm going to go to the gym though. So how do, you, how do you create those habits when you have a structure around you of people that rely on you? You're focused on creating this new identity habit. And then you have all these people that are focused on getting whatever they need from you to be whatever part of their life that you serve. How do you manage that? And how do you create sustainable change? It's kind of an uphill battle, it seems. Yeah, that's a really good question. A very deep question. There's like a lot to unpack there. Yeah. You know, I think, so I talk about the influence of social environment on behavior in the book. I think it's chapter nine or chapter 10. But I think I even undersold the importance of it, right? It got a full chapter, but I think actually it's even more important than that. Maybe the next book. Yeah, right. The people around us, the environment really strongly influences our habits. You know, so many of our behaviors are socially reinforced. So let me give a few examples, and then I'll come back to the, the question you asked. This is true in big and small ways in daily life, right? Like you move into a new neighborhood and you walk outside on Tuesday night and you see that your neighbors all have their recycling bins out. And you're like, oh, I guess we need to sign up for recycling. That's what people like us do. Yeah. Right? It's like it's a socially reinforced habit. If you want to be part of the tribe, then you follow that thing. And this is especially true with examples like the ones you just gave with uh, you know, your family and friends where people are like, oh, we want to go out to dinner. And it's like, oh, 
you know, like I wanted to go to the gym, but now I feel like I have to go out to happy hour with my friends. Otherwise I'm going to be ostracized from the friend group. Right. So there's, so you kind of have this, uh, these competing interests and I think there are a couple things you can do. So the first is there, everybody has 24 hours in a day, but all of those moments, all of those hours are not equally weighted with regard to the amount of energy that you have and the amount of control that you have over that hour. So you may find, for example, that you have much more control over the hour from 6 a.m. to 7 a.m. than you do over the hour from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Right. And so same, it's a one-hour block either way, but ask yourself to do the habit at a time when you tend to have the control and energy to do it. So, you know, in this case, maybe that means waking up a little bit earlier, but that doesn't always work for each situation. You know, like let's say... If you're a parent of a young kid, you may want to build the habit of meditating, but the hour from 6 a.m. to 7 a.m. might not be a good hour for that at all. Your four-year-old doesn't care. They're just running around the table in circles and like trying, you're trying to get them dressed and get them fed and get them off to school and you know, everything else. It's not a good time to do your mindfulness and meditation practice. So you need to think about what is the hour in your day or what is the moment, the time slot when you have the energy and the time available for that habit you're asking yourself to do. Because if you keep asking yourself to do a habit at a time when you don't have control over that hour, you're just going to end up frustrated all the time. So some of this is scheduling or restructuring your day so that you can give yourself that time slot when you have the energy to do it. The other thing that you can do though, is that generally speaking, you tend to have more control earlier in the day rather than later in the day. And there are a couple things that you can do to even magnify the effect of this. So, you know, most people, for example, they might set an alarm on their phone, they go to sleep, they wake up and turn their alarm off, and then they're holding their phone. So they tap on Instagram or they go to you know Gmail or something and start checking their messages. And you haven't even taken a step yet. You haven't even walked out of bed and you're already looking at your inbox, which is like this agenda of items that other people have sent you. And so it's very easy to start your day and feel like you have all this other stuff you have to do rather than the thing you actually want to do. So instead, go on Amazon, buy a regular alarm clock for five bucks or 10 bucks, use that to wake up and charge your phone in the kitchen or in a different room or something. Don't get into that scrolling, you know, as soon as you wake up. And the point here, the, the overall point that I'm trying to get to, whether you want to move your phone or not, is earlier in the day tends to be a better time to respond to your agenda rather than everybody else's agenda. And so if you're trying to build in a new habit and you feel like your social environment or your work environment, or whatever is pulling you off course, then try to do that before uh, those other people get a handle on your day. And then the final thing that I'll add here, and again, you know, I think this is a really deep topic. There's a lot to cover with social uh, influence on habits, but something else to consider is that you know, the people that you surround you, you are going to take on some of their habits and they'll take on some of yours. And people have differing goals and differing opinions. They're at different places in their life. So not everybody's ready to change in the same way that you might be ready to change. And we feel a lot of that friction a lot, you know, like you want to eat healthier, but your family members don't. So then that kind of pulls on that a little bit, or you're trying to stick to a new diet and your coworker is overweight and they're kind of threatened by the fact that you might be doing that. Yeah. So then they subtly, even if they don't consciously think they are, they kind of start to sabotage a little bit. You know, they like buy donuts for the office. Like, oh no, why don't we eat one and stuff like that. And always trying to be vindictive or mean about it or anything, but there's just like, there are these competing forces. And so 
I'm not going to say that you need to like fire your friends or get new family members or things like that, right? Like some of those things are just, we all have responsibilities in life and people's priorities don't always match up, but it is helpful. It is useful to at least have like a sacred space where you're surrounded by people where that's the normal for them, where you're not competing against, right? You're not like conflicting against other people's priorities. So you want to work out and the rest of your family members don't care about yoga and aren't interested in joining. And if you try to do your yoga program at home, you run into this conflict where they want to watch TV instead or whatever. Well, if you can go to a yoga studio where everybody who's there loves that habit, then even if it's just for an hour out of your day, you can spend the other 23 hours with the people that you're normally around, but at least give yourself that hour, that sacred space where you can be with people who build up and reinforce the habit that you're looking to build. And that's true whether you're talking about yoga or writing or whatever the habit is that you're looking to build. Like try to try to carve out some sacred space where you can be surrounded by people that reinforce the habit rather than conflict with it. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, you're basically saying that you can't control your entire environment, but there are certain areas you can control. Choose those areas wisely and do them in the times of the day that you have the most control over. I think that's right. Yeah. Pick and choose your spots. Nobody has full control of all 24 hours. Right. You got a family or you got friends, like there's going to be other things, but pick right. and choose spots and try to, to give yourself a space that's productive and reinforces that. And, dur- and during that time, you become the person who does yoga at seven o'clock in the morning or at six o'clock in the morning. You're the person that identity starts to shift and influence other areas of your life because it's strong because you're proud of it and something that you do and you're, you feel good about. And ironically, the thing that seemed hard in the long run starts to become motivating or enjoyable. You know, like right. let's say you, you, you could do that yoga example you just gave and you go to a yoga class at 7 a.m. Well, waking up at 7 a.m., you know, if you're going to get it up an hour earlier than you usually do or something, it doesn't seem that appetizing at first. But once you start to build friendships with those other people at the yoga studio, right. well, now it's like, oh, no, I want to go. Now, this is the hour that I get to hang out with my people, right? This is of the 24 hours in the day. This is the one when I get to be the person I'm looking to be. And so that starts to become more invigorating and enjoyable rather than something that feels like a responsibility. Yeah, I love that. Tell me about habit stacking. I'm obsessed with this idea. It's in your book. You know, it's like, how do you actually, like, it's, more, it's a tactical idea, right? So... I'd love for you to talk about that a bit. Yeah. So this is an idea I first learned from BJ Fogg. He's a professor at Stanford. He writes about habits as well. He's got this tiny habits program. He call, I think he calls it anchoring because you anchor yeah. a new habit to an old one. But the basic idea is the same. So you take something you already do each day. Like let's say you make a cup of coffee every morning. Um, and then you say, all right, my old habit, my current habit is I make a cup of coffee every morning. And I want to start the habit of journaling for you know one minute. So I say, after I make my cup of coffee, I will journal for 60 seconds. And so that's kind of this habit stack. You stack the new one on top of the old one. It gives you a a very clear and specific place for that new habit to live. And this is kind of the value of habit stacking. It makes it more likely that you'll remember exactly when to do it and where to do it. If you get good at it, then you can start to stack more habits on top of it. So you can say you have like a little morning productivity stack and it could be like, After I make my cup of coffee, I will journal for 60 seconds. After I journal for 60 seconds, I will write my to-do list for the day. After I write my to-do list for the day, I will choose the most important item on that list and begin working on it. And so you just kind of got these little three habits stacked on top of each other. And that's your little morning productivity routine. And it only takes, you know, three to five minutes, but that's kind of how you get your day going. And uh, little habit stacks like that are very useful for 
making sure that you kind of start things off on the right foot and you can insert them at various times, you know, so like you got that little example, maybe that's your little morning productivity routine when you're at home and then you do your commute and you get to the office and you have another uh, product, a little habit stack, which is I hang my coat on the coat rack. And after I hang up my coat, I fill up my water bottle. After I fill up my water bottle, I open my email and check to see what messages came in or whatever. And like, that's just a little way of making sure that I've got my office organized and I got my water next to me and I like get started on work right away. And so you can have these little habit stacks as sort of like entry points each time you come into a new environment or start a new task um, that kind of gets you going in the right direction. That's awesome, man. I love that. Yeah, habit stacking seems like a practical way to just create. You're basically, it's building blocks, right? You're just essentially building. And there's also a way that I'm, I've, I've heard to do that with your thoughts, right? Like when you brush your teeth, you think of the things you're grateful for. Mm. And then you start building on that. You know, when you're in the shower, you think of you know, how awesome you are, how much you love yourself. I don't, there's a ways to build on, on that from a thought perspective as well. Yeah, those are good examples. Um, you know, I've heard one where, so I, I've done, you know, every night when I sit down to dinner, I say one thing I'm grateful for that happened that day. Or whenever your phone rings, you take a deep breath and smile before answering. Yeah, well, that's um, a good things, one. things like that, right? Yeah. And so little strategies like that are sort of like habit stacking is kind of like creating a set of scripts or rules for yourself. You know, like when, if this, then that. When I When this happens, then I follow with this action, you know? So when I see a set of stairs, I will take them instead of the elevator. Or when I want to drink a Coke, I will drink a full glass of water before having the soda. I can still have it if I want, but I have to drink a glass of water first. So little routines like that are, um, there's, you know, little stacks and scripts that help you uh, do the more productive thing. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that really helped me around food is like when, you know, I eat one portion of food, even if it's a salad and fish, let's say, and as soon as I'm done, I'm like, wow, that was delicious. I want another one. I'm like, yeah, it's healthy in my mind. I'm thinking to myself. And one of the rules I put in place was put a timer on for five minutes. Once the five-minute timer mm. has exhausted, if I still want it, I'm allowed to have it. But if I don't, I don't have to. 98% of the time, after the five-minute timer, it's, oh, I'm like, oh, I'm full. I just didn't register. You know, it was just delicious. So Yeah, that's a fascinating thing. I, that's a good example. I, you know, I talk about this in the, I call it the second law of behavior change in the book, which is all about making it attractive, making your habits attractive and increasing the desirability of a habit. And there's some interesting science behind this or there, there's something that's related to this. So the, the brain is constantly circulating dopamine throughout your brain. And dopamine is not the only chemical that influences habits, but it does play a central role. And when you see an attractive opportunity, like you just ate that portion and now you see a second portion that you could have, your brain spikes with dopamine in anticipation of that. So it's the, it's actually the, you eat one cookie and you see the second one. And it's actually the anticipation, the expectation of that cookie being tasty, of it being enjoyable, being pleasurable, that spikes dopamine and motivates you to act. It's actually the expectation of the reward, not the reward itself that motivates you. And so when you do little strategies like that, like setting a timer for five minutes, what happens is that these spikes of dopamine, these little waves of desire, they're like a wave. They, they crest. And then after a few moments, they pass. And so you're essentially giving yourself a chance for literally your desire to act, to rise in the brain and then pass. And then when it, once it passes, you're like, oh, I'd rather do something else. And so it's just kind of a way of creating space between the feeling and the action, which I think is a, a interesting and productive way to to change your behavior. It's, it's interesting because for you, it just came out of practical experience. 
but I think there's there's some interesting kind of chemistry and science behind it as well. Yeah, that, yes, it is. Came from practical. Just like give it five minutes and see what happens. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, it's powerful. Last question for you. Um, I know um, you're on a timeline here. So over the last decade, you made so many changes in your life, lots of habits um, that you've created. What are two of your uh, most productive habits that have given you the most reward uh, for creating? Yeah. So I'll give you one that's kind of big picture and then one that's a little more tactical and, and strategic. So the big picture one is exercise. You know, it's not uh, my answer there is not one that's going to surprise you. It's not different than what a lot of other people say. But I think if I'm being honest, working out four days a week has changed my life more than probably any other habit that I've done. I don't know that I would be an entrepreneur uh, if I didn't exercise consistently. Like entrepreneurship can be a lonely journey. It can be a very like roller coaster ride emotionally. And there were a lot of days in the last 10 years where I felt like I didn't get anything done. It wasn't productive in any way, but at least I had a good workout. And it feels nice to be able to go to bed at the end of the night and think, well, I blew it on the business front today, but at least the whole day wasn't wasted. So that's really helpful. And then another one that uh, maybe is less common, but also very meaningful is leaving my phone in another room until lunch each day. Until lunch. You know, I, I'm, I'm in a good position here where, you know, I obviously I have my own business, self-employed. I don't have a boss that I have to, you know, like answer calls from or something. But it, so it doesn't work for everybody. But man, if you do it, it's really helpful. So, you know, I get a chunk of time from 8 a.m. to noon or so where I don't have all this other stuff interrupting me, where I can just focus on like the top priority on my agenda. I mentioned this one not only because I think a lot of people would benefit from just, you know, leaving your phone in another room for a few hours while you work. But also because I think it uh, reveals something important about how our habits are formed and why we tend to find ourselves falling into certain habits, which is that convenience is often the primary driver of many of the habits that we do. So if I have my phone next to me, if it's on the desk right beside me, I'm like everybody else. I'll check it like every three minutes. You know, I'll check it a hundred times in the morning. But if I leave it in another room, I have a home office. So it's only like 30, 45 seconds away down the stairs. I never go get it. And so my, the question I have to myself is, well, did, did I want it or not? You know, like in one sense, I did want it because I would check it a hundred times if it's right by me. But in the other sense, I never wanted it bad enough to work 45 seconds to go get it. And I think that there's so many things like that in our lives now, you know, like life is so frictionless, so effortless in many ways, checking your phone, scrolling social media, ordering a meal on Uber Eats, turning on Netflix and finding a show to watch. Like, all of these things are so convenient that we find ourselves doing them at like the slightest whim, the smallest desire. If you have any urge at all, it's right there and you can do it right away. And so if you just restructure your environment a little bit to add a little friction between you and the phone, between you and the remote, between you and the meal, then what you find is you often do actually want to do the harder thing. It's, it's not that you didn't want to do, you know, you didn't have a goal for yourself of getting in shape or of writing that book or of, you know, not procrastinating. It's just that all these other things were so convenient that you never let the desire for those pass more than a second without acting on them. And so if the environment's changed a little bit, well, now I can't get my phone right now. So I wait three seconds and then I realize, oh, I don't really care about that anyway. And then I sit for a minute and I'm like, oh, I guess I'll work on that article that I wanted to work on, you know? But that only happens if you give yourself enough space between you and like all those frictionless convenient options. Yeah, I love that. I do something similar with my phone as well. So I, I sleep with the phone outside of my room and um, I try not to turn it on until I have to get my morning routine in. 
And mm. I think for me, the biggest struggle is, which I'm curious how you would respond to this. You know, let's say I'm waiting for an exciting email to come in and I need it. I'm curious if someone responds or not, or if I'm waiting for an exciting message to come in. When, when that happens, I have a harder time. When yeah. there's nothing in particular on my mind that's, you know, that I'm waiting for, it's really easy. I wouldn't say it's really easy, but it's become a habit over time. But when there's something like that's exciting, I'm like, shit, I want to just sure. urge, you know? So this comes back to what we mentioned a few minutes ago about the expectation or the anticipation being the thing that motivates you to act, right? It's actually, it's not the email itself. You don't know if it's there or not. It's the image that you create in your mind of what if this good email comes in or what if this, you know, what if I get this interesting message? It's the expectation that actually drives you to act. So these are uh, two potentially more extreme examples, but uh, or extreme solutions, but these are options that you could, could think about. So first one is sometimes you can install a program like uh, Freedom, for example, is a website blocker. And so I set up a recurring block uh, using Freedom. The one that often pulls me in is ESPN, I'm like checking the latest sports news and stuff. And so I just blocked ESPN from 9am to 5pm. Um, I, I can't even get to it, right? It's it, the website won't come up. So that's one way of kind of like, well, I still might have that anticipation, but it's just, it doesn't matter because my hands are tied. But uh, with respect to the phone, I think that's an interesting strategy of not turning your phone on until you get your morning routine done. If you wanted to be really extreme about it, you can buy their, their little Tupperware containers and they have a timed lock on them. Wow. Uh, so they're not made for phones. They're made for food. You know, like I don't want to eat cookies for the next 24 hours. So I put the lid on the container and then I press the code and it locks and then it unlocks automatically 24 hours from now. Well, you could charge your phone in one of those each night. If you wanted, you could buy one of those Tupperwares, put your phone inside, lock it for eight hours or whenever, you know, whenever you want to have access to it. And then at the end of the time, the lid unlocks and you can take your phone out, but you literally won't be able to physically get it until then. Now, some people won't like that, right? Because it restricts, like, what if I need to get my phone in the middle of the night and so on? But, um, but yeah, those are, those are two potential ways to keep your hands tied and make sure that you stay focused. Yeah, I love that. These are some really um, powerful insights. Thank you so much for joining the show. Your wisdom is a gift and your book is a gift. I've recommended it dozens of times and I look forward to continuing to do that. It's just, it's, it's information that you can't hear enough. There's so many things that are constantly trying to grab our attention and, and, and habits that are formed out of convenience that it's, it's really important to put attention to it and figure out you know, what we want to create and do it by design. So great work, man. And thank you so much for showing up. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it so much. I'm glad you enjoyed the book and thanks for the opportunity. All right. Take care, James. Thank you. Hey, one more thing before we say goodbye. My goal is to make Feeling Full the best possible podcast you listen to, and I love your feedback. If you have comments, ideas for future shows, guests, or topics, or just feedback in general, you can email me at m@feelingfull.com. You can also find out more about the show and all the past episodes at feelingfull.com. And if you found this episode valuable, please share it with a friend or leave a review. Until the next episode, take care, be well, and feel full.